0: You are all weirdos.
1: Weird Science is the revolution. Weird Science is the revolution. Welcome all you weirdos. For Cohen's and everyone who prefers podcasts with two voices on them, it's time for another Weird Dose of X, the X-Man podcast that is part of the Weird Science family of podcasts. I'm Jason and with me today, fresh from his trip to the Savage Land, is our pal Ruben. Ruben, how the heck are you today? Uh, I'm doing good. I did know that Chicago was the savage land, but why not? Well, we're glad to have you back. I I, I don't know if you uh, you listened last week, but I did manage to put out a a solo podcast, which was uh, a new experience for me. I, I think I know I will prefer having someone to talk to rather than just blathering the microphone, and I I expect our listeners will uh, appreciate that as well. So thanks for coming back. Yeah, I enjoyed the sound effects. It was a uh, it was a funny. I podcast. still haven't listened. I I'm one of those people. I have trouble hearing the sound of my own voice, so I ship it off to Jim and whatever shenanigans he does with it. And now that I say that out loud, I know he's going to mess with me even more. Insert sound effect here. Hey boy, hey. Do, 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 do. yeah, uh huh, uh huh. So <laughs> yeah, so whatever he does, it's um, you know you can you can tell me you can not tell me. I it, once I ship it off, it's somebody else's problem. Not on my watch. But today, speaking of things that are our problems, we have two books to talk about. We have Immortal X-Men, number one. That's the first Immortal X-Men replacement. That's part of our Sins of Sinister event. And we have Sabretooth and the Exiles, number four, the penultimate issue of that miniseries. So that's where we'll be going to. But first, I do have a little bit of news to talk about. Uh, If you were paying attention to Marvel stuff, you probably heard a surprise Hickman announcement. They'll be joining with artist Brian Hitch on a four-issue mini called Ultimate Invasion coming this June. Boy, Marvel really likes reusing parts of old event titles, don't they? Your Your secret, your ultimate, your, your, your heroes, return, all those things. They just like to reuse them again and again. And I guess they hope that people who bought the first one, well, you're going to keep buying anything with the same title. Is the Ultimate Universe... Um, compelling. I don't know if you've read any of it. It's funny when I first got into comics as an adult, like I don't know, six years ago or so. Uh, one of the things I heard was a great place to start is the Ultimate Universe because you don't have to worry about the backstory, right? It starts up, and that started just a couple years before I got into comics, so I was able to say, okay, here is a new start. So for me, a lot of my first views of iconic characters, you know, like a lot of the X Men and a lot of Spider-Man stuff, and the Fantastic Four were all through that ultimate point of view. So it's kind of a, a weird perspective, I guess. And some of it was good. It started off, I thought, really good. Obviously, everyone knows the first however many issues of Ultimate Spider-Man, where they start off with Peter Parker and get into the introduction of Miles Morales for the first time. Yeah, it's Great classic stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, there's some good things. And then there's one point where, I forget what the event was called but there's a giant flood that takes out i think most of new york city and like from then on i was like yeah i i think they lost their mojo but (laughs) it was a good and it was it was a fun idea and yet we're not quite sure is this the whole ultimate universe coming back is it going to be brought back in the same way is it going to be a whole different thing yeah we don't know except it's going to be hickman uh it'll feature miles and the maker and you know i i love anything to do with the maker i keep trying to find him in other uh, other comics where he doesn't actually exist. And yeah, so this is not directly related to the X-Men, but I expect Professor Xavier is going to pop up because the Illuminati in the 616 universe were really tied in with that whole secret wars that kind of ended the original Ultimate Universe. So there'll be some kind of X crossover, I'm sure. Uh, and yeah, it's a Hickman thing and we like Hickman things, so folks will want to read about that. And you know, I expect we'll be hearing more about this event on the Weird Science Marvel podcast and also on a little something called the Ultimate Marvel podcast that Jim does over on the Patreon feed. So, you know, folks, if you're not already involved with the Patreon thing, why not head over to Patreon.com slash Weird Science and, you know, check it out. That's a pretty smooth plug, wasn't it? (laughs) Not too bad. You're welcome, Jim. Uh, One more thing. Uh, uh, This is not really news, but it was something I happened to see on Kieran Gillen's Wikipedia page. So it was news to me. Uh, some of his earliest comic work was in a comic strip that he wrote for PlayStation's official UK magazine between 2003 and 2007. And you wouldn't think that's that's relevant, right? It's a long time ago, PlayStation. But it was called Save Point which really makes me think, I don't know if that was the start of his ideas of what he's doing with Mr. Sinister and the Moiras. Maybe the title is just a coincidence. I haven't been able to find any copies of that strip. But if anybody out there who actually has all those old PlayStation magazines, I'm really curious what this comic strip was. And I think that the artist was uh, McKelvey, the same guy who did that other big indie book with, uh, with Hickman. So yeah, I'm it could be a good thing. Anybody who knows what that that uh, comic strip was about, do let us know. All right. Anything you'd like to add before we get off to the books? Nope. Let's jump in. Okay. Away we go into Immoral X-Men number one, Sins of Sinister year 10, part four, The Bond Age. Now, as, as Ruben knows, because we chatted uh, on the Slack, I keep trying to read more into that title than I think is there. I can say is it James Bond? Is it like Savings Bonds, Gary US Bond? But I think it's just yeah It's just an S&M joke, yes. Yeah, Emma Frost, Dominatrix, <laughs> S&M, Bondage, Bond Age. Yes. I think I don't think I think it's really a, a single entendre, as they say. Yes. Uh and so this is written, of course, by Kieran Gillen. Pencils by Paco Medina, who's doing all the year ten pencils, inks by Walden Wong and Victor Olazaba, and uh the multiple inkers always makes me think, oh, was this running late? Did Paco Medina have, have trouble with the schedule getting all these things done? It had to be coming out, you know, three weeks in a row. But, you know, the art does look good. So if there was a schedule crunch, I think they dealt with it, you know, just perfectly fine. Colors by J. David Ramos and Chris Sotomayor. Letters by Clayton Cowles. Designed by J. Bowen. Only J. Bowen. Uh, so, yeah, on the, the cover, again, I think the cover really sets up the whole uh, Emma Frost. Bond age thing, because she has Mr. Sinister tied up and pinned down, and I think he's probably enjoying it. And yeah, that really is what's going on in this comic, even, even literally at some point. Uh,
0: the jokes I saw on the internet were all about how this must be Claremont's favorite issue, since uh, he stops writing the main continuity. And <laughs> oh, so I was yeah. like, is that a, his predilections. is that a thing? And so... People were sort of posting, you know, how many bondage-related characters he introduced and storylines he introduced in (laughs) the years that he was the writer of the X-Men. Nothing confirmed, you know, no interviews from him talking about Mm -hmm. how he's really into that, but I guess people have come to their conclusions based on what
1: he created. Yeah, and in my mind, it's a lot like Quentin Tarantino and the feet thing. Just like feet just kind of keep popping up in his uh, movies and suspiciously long takes and (laughs) <laughs> on places they didn't really need to be, and people wonder, oh is that a yes. is that a thing? Maybe we don't want to think about that. yes uh, so uh, as you may remember, Ruben, here's where we sit as far as sins of sinister. So Mr. Sinister has used his own genes to take over the quiet council, kill off most of his enemies, and basically run the world. The only thing though is that sinisters don't play so nice together, and these other sinisters on the quiet council, they don't want to just defer to the original recipe, Mr. Sinister. They want to have their own proclivities. So he says, okay, no problem. Fine. This is what I have those Moiras for. I'm going to take all this knowledge I've gained. I'm going to kill off this Moira, go back to my post-judgment day save point, and we'll start over, but with all this extra knowledge, so we can get even further in my next run of my video game. Except, Ruben, what uh, what goes wrong with Mr. Sinister's plan here?
0: Uh, yeah, The Myra have been taken by the Orbis, Stellaris, Mystique, Destiny trio, and so he doesn't have the ability
1: to reset anything. Yep, his lab, his entire lab is gone, because that lab was inside an Unis the untouchable gene-powered black sphere. So I don't think that Orbis, Stellaris, and company can get into the lab, but they've moved it off to the world farm, and Sinister doesn't know even where it is. He doesn't know who took it. Why they took it, he just knows all his Moiras are gone. Yep. Uh-oh. So this picks up right from the end of the Sins of Sinister alpha issue. So this is this Immortal X-Men seems to be following Mr. Sinister and the Quiet Council. And it is structured very much like Immortal X-Men was. We have a, a, a singular narrator. In this case, it's the sinisterized Emma Frost who's doing the narration. I missed that at first because in the first narration bubble, there's a very light blue a silhouette outline of the top of a chess queen. I didn't even see that my first time through. So I was trying to figure out, is this the sinisterized Charles Xavier? Is this somebody else? But no, it's definitely Emma Frost all the way through.
0: Oh yeah. Interesting. That is really faded. <laughs> I'm <like laughs> zooming in now. It really is. I did yeah. not
1: see that. It blends right in with that searchlight coloration in the background. So yeah. I just, like, oh, hey, I guess it was Emma the whole time. But yeah, so we start off just kind of taking a peek at what this world is like, which I think is a nice call because we're moving really fast. We have three years, to talk about this 10-year period, before we jump to 100 years. So we get this one little glimpse of what New York City, or now that we're told it's called New Essex, looks like. And I don't know what it is about dystopian futures and blimps, but they all seem to have blimps or zeppelins or airships. Have you noticed that?
0: That's pretty <laughs> it's, funny. It's a
1: thing. Yeah. Like Doctor Who always has them. Uh, dystopian video games have them. I guess they just look ominous hanging over a city. Yeah. And we've got, I think that's the Empire State Building with a big old red diamond on the top. Yeah, clearly things have, have not gone well for people. And we see, we have a strike team put together to try to take out this rule of the sinisters. And it's being led by Nick Fury. Okay, we know Nick Fury. And this is the younger Sam Jackson looking Nick Fury. He has a strike team of... Are we supposed to recognize any of these people?
0: Uh, probably,
1: but I'm not a big S.H.I.E.L.D. eater, so I have no idea. They they look kind of like generic 1990s Wildstorm Rejects, maybe. Mm-hmm. That kind of, you know, you, know, you know, big dudes and tough looking ladies with giant guns and pouches, lots of pouches, that kind of look. So yeah, we think okay, we're going to get a battle between uh, Nick Fury and the Sinisters, but it... Uh, it kind of falls flat, doesn't it, Google? Womp womp. <laughs> yeah, because they just get a psychic command to just oh, let's uh jump out the window instead of going down this down the elevator. Yeah, and it's a really cool page actually. This is one of my favorite pages of the book, where you see them all just plummeting down to their deaths with a completely, you know. Uh, Oh, what's the word? Equanimous look on their faces like, oh, this is just what we're doing. We're not scared. We're not yeah. excited. We're just stepping out.
0: This is good art because I, when I looked at it, you know, I actually was focused because it's very dynamic, right? So the art draws you to that. And I'm like, oh, this is the sort of their badass strike team. On right. the move, right? And then the panel right under it is the splat. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I guess not. It looks like Batman <laughs> swooping down with his cape out. Yeah. And the way the, the dialogue leading into this about like, you know, should we go down the elevator, or out the window, and then like out the window, I'm like, oh, yeah, these are guys
1: just trying to be real badass, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's one of those where a couple pages later, you go back and you, oh, I had, I need to go back because I didn't realize what was actually happening there. It was sinister Charles Xavier making them kill themselves. But yeah. this, this combination, of the very dynamic uh, composition with the the Dutch angle and the diagonals and this team with their big guns, and yeah. then just, they have no chance against these sinister. They're completely outpowered. Yes. They're outmaneuvered. There's, there's just nothing they can do. Even the mighty Nick Fury, which once again, we know this is all getting rolled back. Yeah. So why not have fun with it? I think that's really the big thing about this issue is more than any of the other writers, Gillen is leaning into, I can do anything here. I can have fun with this. It doesn't really matter if I mess up the toys because we're just going to put them back in a couple issues anyway. So why not just do everything I ever wanted to do? And then we pop over to Krakoa and we see, yeah, it was Charles Xavier, a little chat with him and Emma Frost. And apparently this has been happening all the time and She's a little jealous of him getting to kill off the strike forces over and over again.
0: The interesting thing, and this is, uh, I guess, I, I feel like this is something I said with Judgment Day as well. I, I really do like Karen Gillan's writing. I find it engaging and dynamic, and his stories are awesome. But I always end up with these sort of questions of like wanting to know a little bit more about the parameters of kind of the situation we're in. It frustrates me. So we've got you know the sinister Xavier and the sinister Emma. And we see Xavier's kind of sad about what he's done. Right. I I need to know what exactly being a sinister means. I, I just don't get that. That, that is a question that's sort of really nagging me. Like, what does this state of mind do to you? Is it just like, you have no morals? Like, I wish somebody would explain, like, what does it mean to be a sinister?
1: That's an interesting question. And, yeah, it is similar to Judgment Day, very much the same way, like we said, that we knew Judgment Day was going to get rolled back.
0: Yeah, and it was like, what were the criteria of the Judgment
1: Yeah, maybe maybe there should have been a little more space between these events, because it's kind of similar in that extent that we know this is going to get rolled back. And he doesn't take time to explain things, which I think that would bother me more if this was going to be a long-term continuity, where if it's just a lark then I'm yeah. okay leaving it open and having having the space for discussion. I think it's an interesting question. What does it mean? What exactly does this sinister gene do that makes you such a jackass? Uh, and it, again, it doesn't make them obedient to the real Mr. Sinister. It just makes them the same kind of jerk that he is, that all his clones are, who don't, they all have similar things they want to get done, but they all want to be the ones in charge. And in this case, all these sinisterized characters also very much have at least a small, almost caricature version of the original character there as well. Like, this Charles Xavier keeps talking about his dream, but, you know, because he's sinister, he wants everyone to submit to his dream. And if you don't submit to your dream, I'm going to make you submit to my dream, which is the sinister part. Yeah.
0: I will say, too, just Not another subtle, art, but fun. Another art comment that i laughed about is you see the xavier the sinister xavier he put a diamond on his cerebro helmet (laughs) so (laughs) that you could see it whether he has the helmet off or on he just wants people to
1: see the diamonds i am surprised they're not all wearing capes that would have been an interesting choice
0: that would be actually hilarious yeah and then pissing off the original
1: okay so now all the sinisters get together and in one of those psychic meeting spaces like the justice league does sometimes uh, this is made by Emma Frost, which is why it has, again, a bit of a bondage theme. Okay, I, I guess I'm seeing where that title comes from now. Uh, and what comes up is that Pope uh, is putting forward the idea that really the threat to us, and this is something she said in the Alpha issue as well, Earth is no longer a threat. You know, you're the Nick Furies of the world, the heroes of the world, they're not a threat. What we have to worry about are these civilizations in space, the Shi'ar, the Kree, the I mean course the 616 earth is invaded every other weekend anyway <laughs> but i guess this time she's worried they'll be really serious about it so yeah it doesn't really come up again in this issue but i think this must be gillen seeding things for that future time period. yeah she also mentions having a cybernetic hand and i think maybe that didn't get communicated to uh, artist paco medina because it's not both her hands are drawn identically <laughs> so i i think maybe somebody missed a memo there yeah I zoomed in because I wanted to see this fancy cybernetic hand that has a gun in the pinky and the thumb is a grenade, and Emma notices she has a cybernetic hand, so it should be visible, but I I don't know. Oh, well. So, what happens next? We have Sinister. So, Mr. Sinister himself is still on the Quiet Council. He's still part of this whole thing, but nobody's really listening to him, and he's awful bummed about that because, you know, this was supposed to be his world. This is his victory, and yet... He loses because his sinisters are are just like him. It's, you know, my boy was just like me, as the song goes.
0: You know, I, maybe it was being critical, and I don't want people to think I don't love this event and this issue. I actually find this really interesting, is that we have a big event where he was very effective at taking over everything, and yet his, his scheme was too good. <laughs> and now it's gotten bigger than him, which I'm like, that's a really interesting fresh take on, you know, a kind of
1: global catastrophe storyline. It's a new way for the villain to win and lose at the same time. Yes. And that that fits perfectly with the character of Mr. Sinister that's been given to us for several years now. It kind of really grows out of what we know about him. I don't think any of us would have predicted it, but it's one of those things where, oh yeah, of course that's what happened. Once <laughs> you see it, obviously that's what would happen. Yes. So he goes off to mope over a cup of tea and I, I love this scene where the British writer, Kieran Gillen, has Mr. Sinister complain about Americans not being able to make a cup of tea. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a tea man myself, so it I, I, I yeah. know that if you go to buy a, like a tea at like a Starbucks or even like a high-end coffee shop, yeah. usually, unless it's a tea-focused place, the tea is going to be a bag of Lipton in some <laughs> lukewarm water, and it's going to suck. You can't be a nonconformist if you don't drink coffee. I, that look of Mr. Sinister looking at that tea bag with just hate in his face, I have been... In that position. Yeah. I have my fancy tea in the thermos right here in front of me, my, my darjeeling that I make for myself. Yeah. So yeah. So uh Nathaniel just Essex, get yourself get yourself an electric kettle, some darjeeling, you'll be fine.
0: I, I just love the line, this is my utopia, and Americans still can't make tea properly. <laughs>
1: Hello, Governor. So he goes off to have to, to figure out what to do, right? And have you ever heard of this thing called rubber duck debugging or rubber ducking Mm-mm. no so this is a, a real thing i learned about in, in school it's a programmer thing where if your code isn't working and you can't figure out why what they tell you to do is you take a rubber duck and you explain it to that rubber duck bit by bit and the idea is that by having to break it down to the simplest possible level to explain it to a duck You will figure out for yourself where you went wrong. Yeah. Right? The assumptions that you made that you don't see because you wrote it will become apparent when you have to explain it. Now, Mr. Sinister, he doesn't use an actual rubber duck, of course. He uses a clone of himself. Ruben, are you still there? Yep. Oh, okay. I I thought you dropped out there for a second. So, yeah. He uses a clone of himself. And what he figures out is, hey, what I got to do is I've got this failsafe. I can trigger a fail-safe, and that'll kill off all the clones, and that's great. But uh, there's a problem with the fail-safe, isn't there? What's What's the problem with the failsafe? It's not there. <laughs> where is it's it? <laughs> it's in the safest place in the world. Yes. Inside his super-secret lab, inside the Unus the Sphere, which is who the hell knows where. We know where. He doesn't know where. Oh, and also, mm-hmm. I like that dark beast's head which we saw earlier in this run, is also in the lab. Yeah. Good stuff. But there he can still trigger the failsafe manually. And at this point we don't know what that means, but that's what he's gonna do. He's gonna do trigger some kind of failsafe, kill off the clones, uh, and then he won't have his Moiras back yet, but at least he'll have, you know, these jerks who look kinda like him, you know, ruining his day. And of course he then kills off his clone because he can't have he doesn't trust himself to not give away his secrets, which he really shouldn't. So he's learning something. Okay, off now to put that plan into effect. He's going to attack Emma first, which you know, makes sense. She's kind of the strongest personality, her and Xavier. She's on the cover. So he goes to attack her in her sleep with a syringe. And I guess this is the manual reset, right? It's uh you, you, you plunge a syringe into her neck. I, I kinda think that if you could just do that, you could just chop her head off. I don't know, but this is he's, he's a geneticist. He does yep. things genetically, and it doesn't work because somehow, even though she looks like she's in her human fleshy form, she's actually been sleeping in her diamond form. Yeah, And and another bondage thing, oh, yeah, I get the title now. Uh, she has Mastermind hidden behind a secret flip-flopping door straight out of Young Frankenstein and has him doing a, a, a psychic command to make anyone who sees her sleeping think she looks all fleshy. Does that really work?
0: Yeah, it works for me. You know, he, he creates an illusion, right? So he creates the illusion that makes it look like she's a human, when in reality, she's sleeping in her uh, diamond form.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm fine with it. Uh, so it doesn't work. He does a little whoop, 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 and gets out of there through a portal. And of course, the portal is diamond shaped. I don't know what technology makes diamond portals, but again, I'm going to go with it. Gillen doesn't want us to ask too many questions. We're, we're going quick. And we get another cool data page here that's a map with labeled locations. And I think just like the beginning, this is just mostly an excuse for Kieran Gillen to throw in some jokes and to give us a little bit information about the wider world at this point in the timeline, yep. right? So we hear about the bar Sinister with no name. Uh, we see what's going on in the Savage Land where you were last week. A uh, little little joke about France, always good. Yes. I think that was cool because it says France, the last place he would ever go to. But that's the first place we saw him in Immortal Number 1. So, okay, yes. maybe Emma doesn't know him too well. That's pretty right. funny. Yep. Uh, we see that Wakanda doesn't seem to be, again, just like if Wakanda was separate from the whole Age of Krakoa, they didn't have a treaty with Krakoa, they don't seem to be in on the whole Sinister thing either, which is kind of cool.
0: It's very cool. I like that element that they, I guess they've been proven to be smarter than the rest of the world. Like, I thought their whole isolationist
1: thing was a little weird, but, you know, jokes on me, they knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. In- indeed. I Sometimes you just want to say, include us out, and uh, that could work for them. Another location in the middle of the ocean is called the Lem- Lemurian Plants, where it says the deviant vat's psychic anguish creates a significant concealing miasma my asthma of pain. And all I get from that is, boy, it's it's never good to be a deviant, is it? <laughs> no matter what happens... The deviants always get screwed. Yes, I don't. We don't. I don't think it matters what's going on there, except oh boy, it's not good. And finally, we see that uh, there's a place called the Westchester Complex, which is just going to be the old Xavier School, and that's where Emma's going to go looking for uh, for Sinister. And obviously, that's where he is. We don't waste any time with any of these other places. We cut right from oh, where'd he go to here he is. And this is the same location we saw briefly in Nightcrawler's number one. That's where the Dr. Nemesis and the actual Nightcrawler were hanging out. And there's a short fight. Uh, Sinister hits Emma with a Banshee slash Cipher sound gun that shatters her arm. Uh, But Emma just slaps on a Logan patch to grow it back. And here, Emma makes reference to an earlier fight where Sinister also removed one of her arms. And that was in 2011's Uncanny X-Men number one written by... Kieran Gillen. So he likes to he likes to remind us of some other things he's written in the past. And Sinister goes back to one of his favorite themes, which is chim- Chimera made from Scott Summers. Yes. And this is Scott Summers mixed with the Nasty Boys. Are you familiar with the Nasty Boys rumor? Nasty Boys.
0: Nasty boys. No, I didn't know that was a group. I I do recognize Multiple Man, right? And then I guess some some of the Morlock characters.
1: The Nasty Boys were Sinister's goon squad back in 1990s Peter David X-Factor issues. Okay. So Multiple Man was one of them, but it wasn't the original Multiple Man. It was like a dupe who had gone bad and got away. Uh, So that's obviously the one on the left. We have Airbag and Ramrod. There's some 90s names for you. Those are the ones who look like Rocket and Groot. And they didn't originally look like Rocket and Groot. I I think it must be just drawn that way as a joke because everyone loves Rocket and Groot. We have Slab. uh, He's the big bald guy with the vest. We have Ruckus. He's one with sound powers who has a visor over his mouth. And in the back, we have gorgeous George, all with Scott Summers' visors on. We do have on the left like a figure in the shadows with a visor. I don't know who that could be because I think I'm out of Nasty Boys, but yeah. I, I don't, we don't see any other character pop up. Uh, I, I don't know if there was just a blank spot in the in the composition and Malcolm Dina wanted to fill it in. I, I don't know who that is. So there's going to be a fight, but does Emma Frost ever have a problem getting Scott Summers to do what Emma Frost wants Scott Summers to do? No. She That's, does not. Another so scene she, I,
0: I thought it was pretty hilarious. You just you see the big bad... Oh, nasty boys, right? And then like two seconds later, they're just shooting in all the wrong directions. It is the
1: same joke again, yes, but it's a good joke, so why not? Boys. Just, here's the big setup, and then just a deflating, oh, that didn't work at all. Which, I mean, that's the theme of this event for Mr. Sinister. That didn't work at all. So they're all gone. And and he's now- so confident.
0: That's the thing. I mean, the art—the art really works here, right? Like, look how proud he looks. Yeah. <laughs> he's like big grin, like like oh, I'm I'm in charge. And then two seconds later, he's got the chain around his neck for Emma. It is set
1: up punchline, set up punchline. It is yeah. classic classic joke writing in superhero form. <laughs> yep. So now we get the part where Emma chokes him out with the chain from the cover, and it looks like she's just going to kill him off, but he yeah. plays. An odd little trump card. He tries to convince her that you got to keep me around.
0: Yeah, he's the only one that can make chimeras. And he reminds her that the uh, space empires are going to turn their attention to Earth. And without chimeras, there's no way that they will be able to, you know, repel the space forces. And he also shows a picture of Rasputin 4. So that that was one of those. I don't know why. Maybe... Let's play to a lot of X-Men fans, because I was surprised that that was who he shows. Because he's like, hey, look, I
1: can make uh, Chimera with, was it
0: five powers? Five mutant powers. Yeah. Which,
1: I don't know why five is that big. It really reminds me of some years ago when the razor blade companies were competing to see how many blades they can put on. (laughs) "This, This one has seven blades. Oh, yeah. this one has five powers. Oh, okay. I don't know why that's such a good thing, but why not just have two Chimera with... Three each. Right.
0: Rasputin Four is definitely the coolest of
1: the Hickman um, chimeras in the far future of Hawkspox. Yep. To remind folks who this is, so we see just in like a, a screen here. This is his plan. Uh, an image of a female chimera mutant who looks like a character called Rasputin Four, and so she was in the X squared time period. From Hickman's Powers of X title. And that one did have powers from Five Mutants. So I looked it up. She had powers from Wolverine, the Laura version, Kid Omega, Colossus, Kitty Pride, and Unis the Untouchable. Gosh, she loves Unis. So that is actually a, a callback to a long, long time ago, relatively speaking, back in uh, Powers of X, like number two or three is where she came from. Yeah. Now, whether this is actually going to be Rasputin 4, or maybe an earlier version, your Rasputin one or two, but it seems to be one of you know somebody in the Rasputin line of things. It's a very cool callback. Yes. So that's kind of where we leave it, right? Sinister has tried to take over the Quiet Council. He's lost. And the Quiet Council know he's plotting against them, but thinks he's too useful to get rid of entirely which is really the same position the original Quiet Council was in, which is another wonderful little symmetry there. (laughs) He's in the same spot he always was, where they need him and they hate him, and they both know it. That actually is pretty cool. I didn't think of it that way. So Yeah. So I thought, again, this was a a really fun book. It didn't move plot forward a whole heck of a lot. We didn't have, oh, here's a giant reveal. Here's where the lab was. Here's where this was. It was just sinister, uh, I wonder if I wonder if this is sinister at his low point. Yeah, are we going to see the hundred year time period him start to come back, or is he going to keep being dragged through the mud? Yeah, not sure about that.
0: I would assume that we're going to get to a point where the space empires are attacking Earth, and
1: he'll be working for the Quiet Council again. Yeah, it's got to be a space thing. They foreshadow that too much to not not show it to us at this point. Okay, uh, art wise, the Paco drawing looks. Looks really good. Even with the multiple anchors, I didn't see any inconsistencies. Yeah, I I didn't even know there were different anchors. I think that uh, it really looks like an immortal X-Men book. Similar layouts, similar character models. Of course, it doesn't look quite the same way Lucas Warnock drew all the faces and things, but it does seem like a slightly different altered version of that same series, which is what it should do. So I think very well done on that. Uh, the two most showy splash page are the ones we already talked about. Uh, Nick Fury's Strike Force falling out of the sky, still looking totally confident, and that reveal of the Nasty Boys. Uh, two teams that end up going nowhere fast. But it really, the art really helps sell the joke because it gives you that confidence before the. Yeah, I, I also want
0: to say on X, uh, Twitter, a lot of people finally realized that the. uh Sin- or secrets of sinister tied back to issue titles and i was like man you called that out like probably 10 months ago <laughs> hey folks <laughs>
1: should be listening to our podcast
0: yeah it's really bizarre that people to, like just figured that out
1: this week but it's all right oh well better late than never And hey folks go back and listen to our uh, our back issues yeah learn all sorts of good stuff so that's about all i have to say about this issue i really enjoyed it uh it doesn't feel as weighty as some of the other other issues, but it's just Kieran Gillen having fun, giving us a version of the characters that I really love. And for me, that's enough to give it an 8.5 out of 10. Yeah,
0: I'll join you there. I usually hate these issues where you just kind of kill off characters, but given that it's kind of a ridiculous story that we know is not going to persist. It just doesn't doesn't matter to me that
1: much that that's what's going on. Yes, we're really learning what the tone of this event is, and this fits in very well with the tone. Yeah. Now, off to a book with a very different tone, and that, at least, I'm going to have a very different reaction to. Yeah. This is Seabertooth and the Exiles, number four of five, the penultimate issue of the series, written by uh, Victor Laval, art by Leonard Kirk, colors by Rain Barretto, Letters by Corey Pettit, this time designed by Tom Muller with Jay Bowen. So, both of, them, both of them get the design credit here. So, yeah, this this, uh, this series, Ruben, it started off kind of okay. It had me back on board, and it's kind of fallen apart for me. I wasn't even sure if the scenes were in the right order here. Uh, I am not wasn't sure who was speaking, who was writing some of the memos. It's confused. He has... Let, uh, Victor Levile has a thing he wants to get across, but I don't think he's really structuring the story part of it in a way to to make the story and his moral lesson really mesh together. Are you going to tr- convince me otherwise, or are you on, more or less in the same position as I am? Oh, I got to convince you this is amazing? Uh, no, I hated it. It was so bad. Okay. It's getting great reviews. It's getting like eight, nines, and tens, but... I'm glad people are enjoying it. It's just, I, I don't think it's it's good.
0: There's some things, let me just be critical because I hated it. The, <laughs> sure. The art just sucks. The, I mean, it's like really detailed, very similar to Immortal, right? Where like you've got emotions on people's faces and everything. But the layouts, like it's just very blocky. It feels like super amateur in my mind. Like as well drawn as it is, just the layouts just don't work. Like none of the sort of, you know, wow like scenes
1: hit right people died it's just kind of in a weird small box there's there's one bit i thought was was drawn well while we're talking about the art that that visually i thought was arresting and that was where the watery giant hand comes out of the ocean to grab dr barrington and the creation art's okay that had almost like a uh what's his name land landy The guy who gets accused of tracing too much, Greg Land. It had like a Greg Land feel to it without the the porny bits. Yeah.
0: yeah. I thought that looked okay. Like the actual art, the characters and stuff is very cool, but I just hate the layout. The layout just really irks me. And then the other thing I'd say is it's like written to be this like character driven story, but I hate every character. Like I could not tell you the personality of any particular character other than just like Annie likes babies. Okay.
1: At one point, Sabretooth becomes like this silver tongued orator winning people over with his words yeah. and all of the children are coming to him and I don't right. think that's what Sabretooth would do. I think he'd rip yeah. their guts out. I think he would yeah. threaten them, not try to, you know, convince them with his his, his crazy ideas. That's yeah. that's not him.
0: it's, it's he's weird. not Magneto. No, he's not Magneto and randomly just talking about how he feels left out. I'm like, where did that come from? It just all these sort of dialogue points where it's supposed to be like this is real talk, right, or something, and it's just not earned. So it just comes out of nowhere, and you're just like, okay, it's a dialogue piece. <laughs> and then like the the exiles, there's a there's a scene where they're like, oh, we're we're feeling like a team. I'm like, what? Like you're doing the same shit you've been doing like every yeah, it issue, wasn't right? Showing
1: like, them really team up. So (laughs) it it had pieces where you could see like what things were written in Victor Laval's notes. I want to hit this. I want to hit this. I want to hit this. But he didn't really connect them. So just to to set up where we are. So we ended last issue with our heroes still in the astral plane and Dr. Barrington and the creation headed to orchestration four, which is called the Infernal Nursery. So, that's where we thought we're headed. We're going to the Infernal Nursery, and mm-hmm. we still got to get our heroes out of the Astral Plane. So, here we jump forward in time. Uh, our heroes, plus, I guess, all the mutants who were trapped in Orca Station 2, where we left them, are now aboard this giant flying sailing ship, which is only explained in a data page yes. that it feels like it was tacked on at the very end. Like, oh, crap. Uh, what is this thing again? I don't know. Make it a data page. Yeah. it, it again, this data page doesn't work as a data page because this would not exist in the world, right? A data page should be, here's if you could get a peek into Sage's logbook. If you could see a memo from X-Force or from Orcus or their org chart, right? Oh, here's an actual thing in the universe. This is just not that. There's no one who would be writing about this ship.
0: But the best part to this for me is I don't know where this ship came from. I don't know anything about it. And then it's like a convoluted explanation of like, oh, it's this other ship, but there's not enough capacity on the ship. So we use these mutant powers to expand it. And I'm like, just tell me you got this spaceship, right? That's big. I don't need to know that it was too small. And then you added parts to it to make it bigger. Like, what does that give me? Nothing.
1: And we see Orphan Maker has a new suit. And I mean, that looks all right. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of bland. I don't know that it's all that different from his old one. It seems to have a couple of ears on it. Yeah. Uh, that's fine. There's a joke about Nanny, you know, being interested in, in kids. And, you know, I was fine. Yeah. <laughs> and we get another uh, Orcus memo. And yeah. I was confused because I thought these were coming from Dr. Barrington. But this, I think, is coming from uh, the general contractor who worst kept secret in the world is it's great and Creed. But it has the same exact voice. As the Dr. Barrington memos were. Yeah. Right? So it's it's the Bendis thing where they all sound the same. They all sound like Bendis. Maybe that's the problem here. Every character seems the same. They all seem like Victor Laval, kind of lecturing us. Yeah. And this one is, again, talking about a real world bad thing. This is about uh, Native American children put in boarding schools and being kind of denied their culture. And here, it's supposed to be... Meshing within the story, this place called the Infernal Orphanage. Did I say, is that what it's called? Infernal Nursery. Yeah. And the thing is, we never see the Infernal Nursery. So there's no resonance between lesson and story because we're just told this thing exists. And we have no connection to it.
0: It's also weird to have, like, this location and then you start the issue with, like, everything's gone wrong and it's been taken over by the
1: inmates. I'm like, what? <laughs> and a complete coincidence, right? <laughs> like, where does that has come nothing from? Nothing to do with Sabretooth and the Exiles or any of our characters. It yeah. just happens to have this mutiny there, this prison break. Yeah. That we really don't get to see except for two panels of not even the the orphans. Yeah. It just happens to go kablooey as they're heading there, and we never get to see inside.
0: And I don't even know exactly what happens, right? Like, you see, uh, I guess this is some sort of scientist saying, don't come to the station. It's been compromised. And then you see another scientist.
1: He got kind of kiddie pride phased into the machinery, I think.
0: Yeah. It's just really unclear. Like, he's just sort of in the the
1: wall. The idea seems to be there's all these super-powered kids there who took over and I think the whole thing was originally on top of the ocean, but now they brought it under the ocean. I don't think it originally belonged under the ocean. So Dr. Barrington, the creation head there, they have a little chat. She's still looking horrific after taking off uh, Orphan Maker's visor. That was a, a poor choice on her part. They get pulled under the ocean by that giant hand we talked about. And then that big old floating ship that came out of nowhere shows up with our heroes on it. That gets attacked by the hand. At the same time, Sabretooth gets beamed aboard this uh, passing UFO. Uh, That's right. He gets beamed aboard the passing UFO. Now, that apparently is station five. Yes. I've had to – have you kept a list of all the stations? I have, like, a running list of all these stations. And on this station, he's confronted by Graydon Creed, who is his his son – uh, we do get some actual thought bubbles on this page and that's been a thing in this book. A couple issues in a row now we've got thought bubbles and modern day Marvel does not have thought bubbles which again makes me think that some editor at the end tried to fix this mess by <laughs> putting in explanations like wedging them in. That's funny. And oh my god I can't even explain this last page Ruben. What is tell me what's happening on this last page reveal.
0: A multiversal saber tooth that came out of nowhere. Yeah so basically a Graydon Creed has been hunting multiversal saber and killing them Ugh. and this is the last saber-tooth he's got to kill i guess and he's got a
1: bunch of heads on walls now raiden uh, uh, creed has been an anti-mutant guy yeah. in the past and now i get the feeling that uh, victor laval doesn't know that this same exact go through the universe and hunt all the versions plot is happening in Dan Slott's End of the Spider-Verse, and has been happening in Jason Aaron's Avengers for like a year now. So to have this be the big aha surprise, here's the big thing. He's going through the multiverse, hunting all the Victor Creed's. It just, it falls flat. I don't know, did the, did his editors tell him? Victor, this, this is a thing. Everyone's, everyone's doing this. You're not original. Have the editors read those books either? I don't know. It's just rough
0: because we also find out that the, the, the other Victor Creed that was in the um, oh gosh, astral plane, right? They found one oh, in, yeah, in the yeah. astral plane. And then they're like, we got his body back into the physical world, but that shouldn't happen because it's a psychic projection. He must be a strong psychic and then he just dies. Yeah,
1: there's a whole, again, it feels like they're trying to explain it after the fact. Like, oh, there was a physical body in the astral plane. That shouldn't happen. And I'm like, yeah, yeah I agree. That shouldn't happen. Is there an explanation? No, the like, yeah. explanation is Gosh, that's weird. Gosh, that's weird. And then it's like at the
0: end, oh well, that was a multiversal Victor Creed that had psychic powers that Graydon Creed easily defeated. What? <laughs> I guess it's just easy at this point just to go to the multiverse, right? Like everybody knows about it. Your common person
1: is just like, yeah, I'm gonna go
0: get in my multiversal ship and
1: go kill any any corner you write yourself into. Just say multiverse, and now you, you can move forward this is a
0: total train
1: wreck i'm ending this i'm just going to call it a five out of ten and, and not think about it too much yeah, yeah. so I, I look back at my old scores and i i started with a seven and a 7.5 and last issue i went down to a six now i'm down to a five and we've got one more issue with this i know some people are loving it and if you're out there loving it and you think we're missing the brilliance please i i, I want to enjoy the book so if there's something you think I'm missing, let us know. Write in, tweet, We didn't even email. talk about the completely
0: out of nowhere Madison Jeffries' death. So they show up in oh, their yeah. space boat, and then a water hand comes out and like picks up Madison Jeffries and like
1: just rips him oh, apart. Oh, here's okay, here's progression: it picks him up, <laughs> and then uh, the other guy is Third Eye, I think is his name. Yeah, uh, they oh no, or or Melter says they're going to rip him in half, and then they rip him in half. <laughs> <laughs> and then Third Eye says, Madison Jeffries is no more. But at the same time, we see some sparklies, which I'm pretty sure is Madison Jeffries putting his consciousness out into some other bits of floating plastic garbage. I think he's now one with the Pacific garbage pile or garbage island or whatever they call it. So I think that's what we're going to find out next issue. He's obviously not really dead.
0: Also, if I am getting ripped in half by something, please say something more have like more of a reaction than Ruben Pagan is no more. It's like, really? That's what you say after you see like a water hand come out of the boat and like rip your buddy in half?
1: Like, oh crap, I think I'm going to puke something. Yeah. Know, any kind of reaction. So yeah, I think we've kicked this around enough. Oh uh, maybe the last issue will let us know and have us retroactively reflect on, oh, here's what we missed. Yeah. Oh, hope springs eternal. Yeah. but Those were the books we had this week. Uh, next week is kind of a strange week. Sins of Sinister takes a week off, so we don't have anything happening in that timeline at all next week. It'll come back the week after that with the first of the year 100 entries, which this time we'll start with Nightcrawler's number two. So next week we have just two books to talk about. Including the number one issue of a new miniseries, which could be exciting? Question mark. And that is Rogue and Gambit number one, written by Stephanie Phillips, who is most known over at DC for writing Harley Quinn and Wonder Woman. And uh, if you listen to the DC podcast, and why wouldn't you? Uh, you've probably heard uh, Jim and Eric say usually not very great things about those books. So <laughs> sometimes a writer needs to find the right time and place and character and hey perhaps this will be Stephanie Phillips showing us what she can really do again I'm I'm confused because uh, over in Captain Marvel Rogue had just been turned into a brood and then got killed off and Gambit's off in space rescuing Binary So I don't know when this is supposed to take place. It seems very much specifically Krakoan era, so it's not like one of these flashback books like the other Gambit book by Chris Claremont. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to be specifically this is when it happens, or if it's one of those don't think about it too hard situations. Again, whether we go into the following issues of Rogan Gambit, we'll figure out next week, but we'll definitely talk about number one, because the only other book we have to talk about next week will be X-Force number 38, which... Has some sort of Xeno ultimate mutant with all the powers put together, which that's a lot like what's going on in Sabretooth, and it's a lot like what's going on in the Chimera. Oh, it's okay. Anyway, that's x Force number 38. We'll have the Gene Engineer return, and we'll see <laughs> what happens with that, and we'll try to have some fun along the way. Yeah. Okay, so, Ruben, anything you want to add before we uh, wrap this sucker up and move on with our day? Nah, yeah, I'm just going to say read, read more X-Men comics. Do what can we saying.
0: skip next week? <laughs> I know we can't, but man, I'm not looking forward to it.
1: We're gonna have, we're gonna find some fun stuff to talk about, even if we, you know, just like on the DC DC podcast, even the bad books can be fun. So, hey, everybody, go read some X Men comics.
0: You are all weirdos. Weird
1: science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution.